You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Hello, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, our second episode about Charles or Charlie Lucky Luciano. You know, um, last episode we talked a little bit about his time in prison. Really, it was just kind of one prison, interesting little prison story when he was in Dannemora, and he eventually worked his way out, if you remember, to, by uh, making a deal with the Navy, and he got he got the cooperation of Albert Anastasia and, and the other mob guys in, in New York City and New Jersey that worked on the docks to help the Navy and make sure there was no saboteurs on the docks, and and to alert them to any strangers, any uh, German spies or Italian spies that might be poking around the docks, because you know a lot of those, uh, a lot of the equipment and and material that were was going to the war effort would have left from those docks, and they could alert the uh, U-boats out in the North Atlantic that a convoy was leaving if they could pick up tips on the docks, and they would maybe pick up. Uh, gossip from the joints you know loose lips sink ships is that's where that came from uh, and that a certain uh, boat was gonna was loaded with munitions and was gonna hook up with other boats and form up a convoy to go across so uh, he he worked a deal to make sure that the ships were the, the shipping lines were secure as best as best they could and in reward for that they commuted his sentence he had like a 30-year sentence and he had done about 10 years in, in the new york state penitentiary system got himself deported to italy but he didn't stay there very long because uh by 1946 he was figuring out 47 he was figuring out how he could get his way back closer to the united states and like i said before he he got himself closer to new york city with a a, a better prison that was closer to new york city during that time and and that's what these guys do. They want to be close to their their friends and their base, uh, in their hometown. So uh, uh, he got himself uh, wanted to get himself back closer to the United States, and he got himself to Cuba. And and actually, and, and Cuba was, if you think about it, Cuba was was an open city or an open. Uh, Cuba was really an open country. Havana was really an open city. For all kinds of, of vice activities and, and just what the mob likes. Uh, Lansky had already been poking around there about the gambling. Uh, Santo Traficante had numerous connections over in Cuba. They had clubs and it was only 90 miles from uh, the mainland United States. And people people were going over there to gamble all the way back into the 30s. And it's prostitution and narcotics. And, and, you know, the liquor laws were a lot uh, more lenient. And all they had to do if they wanted to make money over there was... Open it up for American tourists, making American tourists feel safe, and pay off the uh, the Cuban regulators and the Cuban uh, policemen, which was pretty easy to do. Uh, eventually, uh, all the narcotics will come up through Montreal and Canada after Castro, of course. But before Castro, and and back into the 30s and 40s, a lot of the mob guys were involved in the importation of heroin. Uh, they wanted to get it up to New York, and and Cuba was a place to. To, to bring it. Also, uh, illegal immigrants could get to Cuba and easily and, and then get over to the United States. So it was, a, it was kind of a hotbed of, of illegal activity that was directed at the United States. Mayor Lansky already had the connections in Cuba, and so he got it set up. Luciano 
got himself two separate passports. He boarded a freighter in Italy, which took him to Venezuela. Then he flew to Mexico City, and then he booked a private flight from Mexico City directly to Havana, Cuba. And when he got there, his childhood friend, Mayor Lansky, was waiting for him. Took him to the Hotel Nacional, which was the big-time hotel in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And he even booked himself in under his real name, Salvatore Luciana. I guess he figured anybody, government agents would be looking for Lucky Luciano or, or Charles Luciano. So Salvatore Luciana was his, uh, his uh, uh, cover name. He got a luxurious suite, of course. He did, you know, he did write a book that's really been uh, with another author called The Last Testament of Lucky Luciano. And, and there was, it's really been called into question. He talked about meetings that happened after uh, uh, he was gone from the United States and that like he was there and there was a, a lot of things in it. But uh, he did say in the, for that book that this was the first time that no handcuffs had been on me and nobody was breathing over my shoulder for quite some time was a direct quote uh, after he got to Cuba. He spread a lot of money around to keep it down on, on what was going on and who he was, paid off all the hotel staff, and because uh, he did not want to draw the attention of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and a man named Harry Aslinger who uh, was dead on the mob. They were the, the Bureau of Narcotics. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was really the only people paying attention to the mob uh during the war, well, they didn't do much during the war, but after the war, up until after 1957 and the Appalachian Convention, then, then uh, uh, the FBI got into it big time, and, and, and they got out of narcotics. But if you want to find out information from law enforcement about the mob during these years, you got to go to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He, uh, he checked out of the hotel shortly after and moved into a home in a Havana suburb, they did book a big room at the Hotel Nationale for the week of December 22nd, 1946, because that's when all the mob bosses from the United States were going to come down there. Lansky, he was carrying messages back and forth between Miami and Havana because he, he had cover. He had business interest in, in Havana and, and Miami both, and he would go back to the United States and get hold of people, and, and they'd make plans about who was coming and who wasn't coming and why they weren't coming, and Lansky told Luciano he ought to buy an interest in this casino at the Hotel Nationale, kind of put him in more with the government because uh, Lansky owned it with another well-known Cuban politician named Batista, and Batista will go on and be the prime minister, the whatever, the president of Cuba when Castro takes over. Batista and Lansky wanted him to pay $150,000 he told his biographers in the Last Testament of Lucky Luciano that he didn't really want to take that 150000 out of his pocket, but he told Lansky that all the invitees to his December 22nd meeting should bring envelopes to welcome him back across the Atlantic to, to be on the American side. Supposedly, these Christmas presents uh, or envelopes to Lucky Luciano ended up being over $200,000, and he used that money to buy this interest in the casino. Now, Luciano's long-range plans were to get Tom Dewey, Thomas E. Dewey, to rescind his deportation. See, Dewey, Dewey was running for president, and he was getting his people back in the United States to start 
supporting that campaign and, and putting money into the campaign of 1948, which is kind of interesting because he runs against Harry Truman, who Harry Truman uh, had the backing of the Kansas City crime family and ended up the Chicago crime family to get those both of those big major major metropolitan areas votes lined up. If Dewey was elected president, then they would call in that chit. They would call in that little loan that they'd made to him. See, these guys, they don't do anything for nothing. Now, that was going to be, that was in 1946, so it was going to be a couple of years. During this time, Lansky negotiated a six-month extension of Luciano's visa with the Cuban Ministry of the Interior. Now, imagine that means negotiating a six-month extension probably meant passing so many hundred bucks under the table, I, I would I would bet. So just before the December 22nd meeting, about a week before Vito Genovese arrived to see Luciano, they had been really close friends back in the 1920s. And, and when Luciano established his crime family, uh, when, they, when they developed the five families and the commission, and in Luciano's crime family, he had selected Vito Genovese to serve as his underboss. So the more modern-day Genovese family was actually the Luciano family. Now, he, he had Frank Costello uh, run when he went to the joint. Frank Costello was was kind of the the guy that was running it, and that was part of the problem with Costello was uh, Genovese was a really violent guy and, and didn't mind doing things with a gun and a knife. Now, Frank Costello was a guy that was smart enough to know that you needed to make deals and negotiate and 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 just do business, and they ended up being uh, there ended up being problems between Genovese and Frank Costello, and actually he uh, he hired somebody to try to hit him, and and the hit went wrong, but uh, Costello just kind of bowed on out after that. And Luciano had uh, you know the the qualities that he selected Genovese for, if they were used against him, it would not be so pretty, and and he came to realize after not being around Genovese and, and not being his boss, he really was a conniving, greedy, backstabbing, double-dealing dude, and uh, he lost a lot of respect for him. A little side note about Genovese, he, uh, he had been in Italy himself for quite a while because he had been indicted for murder in the United States, and right after the war, he was arrested by the United States Army, and they took it, sent him, and they sent him back to Brooklyn to stay in trial. But there was a key witness against Genovese, and it was poisoned, so he was released just a few months before the Savannah meeting. And of course, he he wanted to go back and run the family, and he didn't want to have anything to do, particularly with Luciano. By now, Lansky had told Luciano why Genovese was there. He wanted to muscle in on Albert Anastasia, who had been the you know, of course, the boss in, uh, in Brooklyn and all around the docks, and, and he wanted to take over some of his action. According to the last testament of Lucky Luciano, Genovese started talking to Luciano when he met up with him, and the first thing he said was that Anastasia needs to be eliminated because he's thinking about killing this head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Henry Enslinger. Luciano, you know, he said, no, he said, that's... Uh, uh, that's not the deal. And and he pointed out that as far as he knew, 
Vito Genovese was the only one interested in selling narcotics. Anastasia was not really interested in that. He had his murder incorporated, but he also had a, a lot of rackets down on the docks and the, and the dock workers' unions. We had plenty of money coming in, was not really involved in narcotics. He was smart enough to know that uh, that, that, was, uh, that was a bad route to go, drew a lot of heat. Another thing that Genovese wanted to talk to Luciano about was how he wanted him to go ahead and retire. He said, you know, I'm, I'm running your family, but and you're too far away to run it, so you need to just go ahead and retire. Luciano would report in his book that he said, right now you work for me and I ain't in the mood to retire, so don't ever let me hear this again or I'll lose my temper. And you know what's funny is Luciano was a little guy. I'm not sure, too sure how big Genovese was. He was probably more normal size, but you can just see this little guy standing there and he's perfectly coiffed hair and and uh, you know manicured nails and and uh, stylish clothes and you know i don't want to hear this don't let me ever hear this again or i'll lose my temper as all the other delegates arrived from the united states they checked into rooms at landscape ra reserve form they had the whole top four floors of the hotel national this is just like a convention that you would have, that IBM would have or something, or, or some big company would have. They, they reserved the boardroom for meeting. Uh, they had banquets and parties in other rooms for the groups and uh, little subsets of the groups. Like all the IT people go here and all the salespeople go there, I guess. I don't know. In his book, The Last Testament, Luciano will claim that as each of the mobsters checked in, they paid a visit to him at his house, at this rented house that he was staying in, it's a place called Miramar, which means uh, Ocean View, I believe, in, in uh, English. And they did this to reaffirm their loyalty to him and acknowledge him as still the boss of bosses or the chairman of the, of the board or the commission. The first night, the dinner was hosted by Lansky and Frank Costello and Joe Adnoy as, as a public showing of their private affirmations that Luciano was still the boss of bosses, and at that point in time, supposedly, is when the attendees all came with their envelopes filled with cash for Lucky. The next day, it's just like, I mean, this is just like a, you know, many conventions I've been to, uh, whether it was LEIU, Law Enforcement Intelligence Unit conventions. We used to have get-togethers uh, where we had a, a by-zone and a, and, a, and a national. A by-zone would be about the middle of the year. And the national would be at the end or the start of the year. And the national would where everybody would come. And the by zone would be where it would be like eastern and southern or midwestern and southern. I think it was midwestern and southern when uh, when we, we hosted one here. But, you know, it, it's exactly. They all start out like that. Got a, maybe a dinner uh, at the start, kind of a big welcome deal, cocktail hour and all that. And then the next day, the convention or the conference gets underway. And at the table, you know, body language is everything, and, and where you sit at the table is important. They had a large rectangular table with Lucky Luciano, who sat at the head. And Frank Costello and Vito Genovese and Joe Adnoyes were to his side, probably to his right side. It's been my experience that, that the people that are closest to the, the boss will sit to his right hand. The people that are farthest from the boss will sit down at the end on his left side. And other people that would kind of like to be close to the boss will sit to his left hand, but try to sit as close as they can to him. There's really no uh, 
protocol other than those they got there probably got there early so they could get that but people it's been my experience people will sit where they feel comfortable and that's you know if they feel like they're out or they're away i went to a meeting uh, a big sergeant's breakfast held by the major and we had the same setup and it was a major of the station and he sat at the head of the table and and his aide sat right next to him and a couple of the other guys that they were real uh, uh politically uh, ambitious they sat to his right and then a couple of guys who were always out big heavy drinkers were always in trouble they sat down to the far left and they even were like separated from the other people by a couple of seats uh, i thought well that's interesting that's interesting so you would have had the same thing here in, in this kind of a meeting because people are people whoever they are now luciano will report that after he opened the meeting he thanked them for their money donations. He said he was going to invest it in the hotel's casino. but he, And he also asked them when they talked to him or talked about him publicly or out loud, be sure and call him Salvatore Luciana. And they do. he does not want to have any attention drawn to Lucky Luciano. Because he was all over the newspapers at the time. It's kind of like uh, James Riddle Hoffa. When I was growing up, everybody knew Hoffa. Uh, Anastasia, everybody knew that name Anastasia. Well, a little further back, everybody knew Lucky Luciano, and even ever, you know, even today, people know Lucky Luciano. They know he was a a big time gangster in New York City. Something about that name is just it's easy to remember and what's connected with it. So this was really the first time that formally, with the other bosses around, that that the subject of who was the boss of bosses and was there a title of that was ever brought up and. And it's reported that he, that Lucky Luciano casually mentioned that it was time for him to don that designation. I guess it would be the capo de tutti de capi or the boss of bosses. And uh, said Albert Anastasia immediately jumped up and said, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, he was also glaring over Genovese at the time because he knew that Luciano had, was protecting him from Genovese. Um Here's here's a quote that I don't know where you would have found this quote. Uh, I found this in an Alan May report on this uh, subject. He said, for me, you are the big boss, whether you like it or not. That's the way I look at it. And I would like to hear from anybody who don't feel the same way. Well, at least they used improper English, so it sounds like a gangster. Luciano would claim later that there was just silence in the room. And he said, that's all I wanted. He said, I wanted to teach Vito Genovese a lesson in public without him losing face. And to get the title without having to fight for it. So once, once they said, once they didn't dispute that he was a boss of bosses, he said, frankly, I don't give a shit what happens after that. And then for the next order of business, he got that out of the way right away. You might as well get the hardest piece of business out of the way. He said that he told others he had heard rumors. This is a good way to put this. He heard rumors of infighting between Anastasia and Genovese. And, and he looked down at him. He said, uh, you guys got to work together and work out your differences. Otherwise, you'll end up with problems like we had in the Castamarise War in 1930 and 31, where so many people, that's where they killed off all the old mustache peats. It's Joe Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano were arguing around, and they were the old school. And the other guys, uh, Lucky Luciano, Marilansky, and, and Genovese, and, and some of those other young up-and-comers, saw the weakness, and, and actually Luciano worked for Joe the Boss or Joe Masserian, and they threw in with Maranzano and and, ended up, and killed Masserian, and they ended up killing a bunch of other the old mustache beats. So uh, 
He was trying to avoid that same kind of a situation because these mob wars, they don't really serve anybody. I don't know why they ever have them. They have a way to settle differences, but they still they can't always seem to get that. But every time we have a mob war, it's like this mob war I had here in Kansas City that I, I did the movie on, Brothers Against Brothers, the Savela-Spiro War. I mean, a whole bunch of people got killed, and it drew a whole lot of attention to them. And, and actually, some of the wiretaps uh, that were actually wasn't some of the – actually, some of the – uh, hidden microphones that were placed were the first actual revelation of uh, that there was rumors about skimming from Las Vegas casinos, but that was the first actual conversation that was picked up that they kicked off the whole uh, case that ended up destroying the uh, Midwest families, and uncovering the skim and removing the and and destroying the hold the mob had over the Teamsters Union, put the Teamsters Union into receivership and a trusteeship and and kicked out all the old people in the Teamsters and brought in new people and to put the heads of uh, Kansas City crime family, the uh, Cleveland crime family, the Chicago crime family, and the Milwaukee crime family in jail for quite some time. So um, these mob wars, they, they're, they're stupid to have them, but they do have them every once in a while. And Luciano and Lansky and and Frank Costello were smart enough to try to avoid that. Now, Junivese and some of those guys, they weren't smart enough to avoid that. They, For their pride, they will, you know, they will take down the whole thing. They'll burn down the whole house just so they can say, I was right or I'm more powerful than you. His next topic was, uh, you know, what supposedly uh, they talked about in the uh, – we're going to talk about it and refine and, and order everybody not to get involved in, and that was a narcotics trafficking business. Luciano would, would tell and say in his book, I told him I want him to get the hell out of that business and stop it right then and there and forget it. As we know, that warning and that order fell on deaf ears. They did not get out of the drug business because there was so much money to be made from it. And they were arguing around about it, and, and Luciano could see that he wasn't going to get compliance with his order. And Frank Costello supposedly leaned over and whispered, Charlie, don't hit your head against the wall. Vito rigged this before the meeting even started. Now try to get out as soon as you can. Someday they'll all be sorry. Which Carmine Galente, he was he was one of the big guys. He was sorry. He ended up dead on the floor of a restaurant with a cigar stuck in his mouth. But there's nothing but death and destruction follows that narcotics business. Maybe a few people, maybe a few of them get in and make the big score and get out and go on and live happily ever after. But mostly they just get sucked into it and they want more and more. They a lot of people start using their own product and, and become addicts and then they need more and more and. So it's it's bad business, and uh, they tried to get out of it back then. Now, after that, when after he lost that battle, he then brought up the Siegel situation. Now, Benjamin or Ben Bugsy Siegel was not invited to this meeting. He was out on the West Coast anyhow. Uh, he was looking over the he, – he was representing the New York crime family's interest in – the West Coast at the time, there wasn't really a, a there, was a, there was a kind of a minor mob out there, and they didn't really have any particular power. So uh, Siegel was out there, and he's the one that saw the potential in Las Vegas, especially after they lost Cuba. Right now, they've got these Cuban casinos that they can pull money out of and, and wash cash money through. They, of course, you didn't really have to wash money very much back in those days. That was before the CTRs and 
that's that, that's another deal. The 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 narcotics business really ruined their little playground on using cash because after the government got into the narcotics business big time to to prevent that, they came out with that new law that said any cash transaction over ten thousand dollars you had to fill out a form, and the banker could mark suspicious on it and. Uh, and so that's a way to track that money around. But back then, he didn't have that. But Siegel had become kind of a Hollywood mob celebrity. Siegel and, you know, everything focuses on Hollywood and somebody that's flamboyant and, and handsome. And anybody that was a character out there in Hollywood and in Los Angeles, there's a lot of press out there, and they're going to pay a lot of attention to him. And, and the mob guys do not like that kind of public attention. But he was a he was a mob celebrity in, in Hollywood. Uh He's talking about that's when he first started talking about building this big hotel and casino, which he would go ahead and and build in Las Vegas, which was uh, it was genius. It was genius. He saw the potential where nobody was really seeing it, especially in the post war, because all these guys were at that point in time they were building the Boulder Dam. So you had all these guys, these men. They, when you got men together, then you got to have to have gambling, alcohol, and women, and you got a big casino going about. 30 miles or 40 miles from the work site that has hotel rooms and beautiful women and casinos and, and all the ancillary things that are around a gambling business, which would be prostitution and uh, drinking and smoking. Why, uh, you know, it was genius at the time. Plus, there was no other place in the United States that was like that. And Las Vegas or Nevada had these loose gambling laws. So, I mean, kind of a no-brainer in, as hindsight, but... But back then, he was the first one that really saw the potential. Now, he had uh, he had kind of bungled the building of this. It was the Flamingo Hotel, if you remember. And the original cost had been projected at $1.5 million, and And they're not too sure, but the entire cost is like cost overruns for the military or for any city project. All of a sudden, the, the actual price tag has gotten up to about $6 million, and people don't know, haven't got any money back yet. They don't know whether Bugsy is stealing money out of it and taking it, or he's just bungling it. It's probably a combination of both, more than likely. He had set a date for December the twenty sixth, nineteen forty six, for the grand opening, but they still they didn't know what you know whether this was going to be successful or not. They thought it was, and and Bugsy had assured it would be, but they still didn't know. It's still kind of a crapshoot, uh, to to use a, a an appropriate phrase, I think here. Now, Mayor Lansky told everybody at the meeting that he had heard that Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend, and who's the well-known Virginia Hill, uh, had been making trips abroad and depositing money in a Swiss bank account. Now, Lansky, he was he was a friend of Bugsy Siegel's. They came up together, and, and he said he believed that his old partner would skim even more money and leave the country if the flamingo was a bust rather than he knew he'd he'd be made to pay for it in in maybe with his life or or maybe just uh, uh he'd have to come up with some other kinds of action and and give a lot of the money to the other mob guys and try to repay him as best he could so in the end they took a vote on Bugsy Siegel Lansky and Phil Castell who were both Jewish decided that they should not take they would not vote on it so the rest of the uh, Sicilian mobsters voted and they said yeah he needs to be killed and they even named the person who was going to do it a man named Charles Fischetti out of Chicago and 
the Los Angeles family boss, Jack Dragnum, was supposed to be involved with this. Now, Lansky suggested that they now Lansky suggested that they wait until after the grand opening was just a few days away, and and it's possibly to maybe give Bugsy some time. Maybe Bugsy will will get it figured out that that he's on the he's on the button as they say, uh, he's on the hit list. So they did. They waited. Christmas Eve arrived. During this time, they kind of took a break from their meetings and their wives and girlfriends or wives or girlfriends, depending on which they wanted to come down, showed up, had a big party. Frank Sinatra was there. He came down with the uh, Fischetti brothers, which because Frank had all these uh, connections with Chicago. The day after Christmas, they reconvened because everybody wanted to know, wanted to report on how the Flamingo hotel opening had been received and it was hard to get that information and of course there was a three-hour time differential and uh, they didn't really know i uh, said rain and cold weather prevented planes from bringing customers in from los angeles and and uh, in the end it turned out the opening was considered a disaster but lansky said you know that that's kind of a one-off deal and we can salvage this they reopened, they closed the, he, he recommended they close the Flamingo, and it wasn't quite complete, I guess. They, they closed it and then completed the work and reopened it a couple of months later. And, and of course, the rest is history. It became a huge financial success, and, and everybody that had money in this thing would become rich from it. And all the other casinos and hotels that followed all the way up to, to the 1970s in Kansas City and Chicago and the Stardust and the Tropicana. However, they had not forgiven Bugsy Siegel for all the cost overruns and bringing down all the press and everything onto him. And somebody using a rifle shot him in the, as he sat on the couch in Virginia Hill's home, July, June the 20th, 1947. So that would be about uh, a little over a year after this meeting. Now, in his book, The Last Testament, Lucky Luciano said that at the end of the conference, Vito Genovese wanted to talk to him in private again. And he would say that Genovese would claim that I heard that Washington, meaning the government or the G, knows you're in Havana and they're getting ready to put the screws to these jerks in Cuba to get you thrown out. There's going to be so much heat that nobody can do nothing to help you. You're going to have to get out of here and go back to Italy. And by all rights, everything that's over there is half mine and I want it. Luciano was living. Genovese is trying to tell him that that he needs to go back to Italy and, and wants half of everything that he's got. And he figures that Genovese is the one that ratted him out to somebody, probably to this Henry Anslinger or somebody. Somebody got word to that dude who was a, who was a, a, a bearcat man. He, he was relentless on these guys in the narcotics business. And, and so they figured Genovese had probably told somebody, got the word back to him that he was down there in Cuba. Luciano would claim later that he gave Genovese a beating, punching him and kicking him and broke three of his ribs. Now, I'm not for sure about that. because He also says he avoided marking his face, so there wouldn't really be any evidence. Luciano would also claim later that he and Albert Anastasia put Genovese on a plane and told him that if he ever mentioned the incident to anyone, that, that he says, a quote from his book, that I, Charlie Luciano, will get back to New York and if only long enough to do a final job on you. Now, Luciano's uh, fears of being discovered and what Genovese told him were quickly realized. 
paper, news, the New York newspapers would report his presence in Havana. Now, some would say that really it was it was his own indiscretions, his own moving around too much and and being too obvious down there. But uh, uh, Harry Ashlinger would uh, send a letter to the Cuban government demanding it, demanding that it deport Luciano back to Italy. Who's, uh, the Cuban government balked. Aslinger went all the way to President Harry Truman, who had beat Tom Dooley by this point in time. President Truman told him to take whatever steps were necessary to force Cuba to deport Luciano. Aslinger went public and announced that until Luciano was sent back to Cuba, he would put a halt to all shipments of medical supplies to Cuba. Uh, Lansky and Batista had a meeting with Luciano, and they said, you know, dude, you better go ahead and leave the country and then we won't have to deport you and then you could come back. But he he had his backup by then. Charlie, lucky Luciano, had his backup by then. He refused. He said, you know, that if I go back, then how can I be the boss of all bosses that, that I just do whatever you guys tell me to do? So he hired an attorney who concocted a plan, believe this or not, to counter the United States medical supplies embargo. And and the plan was to get Cuba to cut off all sugar shipments to the United States. Now, that's big-time stuff, but this plan of action never really materialized. It was probably more in his mind. He probably thought he could do that or was going to try to do that because he's arrested by Cuban officials in February of 1947 the next year. They just they they made him stay in his house until he settled up any personal matters that he wanted to take care of, and and then put in an immigration lockup and and sent all the way back to Cuba. Uh, they tried to let him go to Venezuela, but Anslinger found out about it and said, "No, he's got to go back to Italy." So finally, in March 1947, he's put on a old cargo Turkish cargo steamer, the SS Bakir. He said it took over a month for the boat to reach Italy. That's kind of like an insult to injury, isn't it? When he gets back to Italy, he's arrested. Uh, for some reason, I'm not even sure why, but anyhow, he, uh, uh, he he spends the next 15 years in Italy, and finally he comes back to the United States January 26, 1962, but he's in a coffin aboard a Pan American Airways cargo plane. Claimed by relatives and sent out. Uh, he's already had a, uh, a a service, I think, and he's interred in the in, and he's interred in the family vault at St. John's Cemetery in in New York. Uh, and you know what? Ironically, uh, seven years later, Vito Genovese would be buried in a vault just a hundred feet away from him. So uh, this author here, Alan May, says even in death, Luciano cannot escape the greedy bastard who betrayed him. Now, most of this information came in the Last Testament, Lucky Luciano, by Martin A. Gauche and Richard Hammer. And it was not published until 12 years after Luciano's death. He uh, supposedly dictated a lot of the book himself during the last months of his life. And as I said before, there's a lot of factual errors in it. You know, a lot of, you know, history is what we agree it is, and I never let the facts get in the way of a good story myself, and you know Lucky Luciano did not. So that's what we got about the Havana meeting and Lucky Luciano, the end of a two-part series. If you have a friend or relative has a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to First Call. Call 816-361-5900 or go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. If you want to be entertained, 
go get my new movie, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War. I'm getting a lot of positive feedback. I got a bunch of of five-star reviews I noticed on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. If you want to help the podcast, I rent it for $1.99. I get half of that. I get a buck off of that. Or just go to my donation page, and I'll send you $25. I'll send you the the movie, the the DVD that's got the special features on it. Or I'll send you... uh, uh, Gangland Wire, which has special features on that DVD, or I'll send you a gift certificate for a Kindle copy of my uh, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casino. And, you know, in the Kindle version of that book, there's it's linked up to uh, actual wiretaps that were, you'll hear the actual voices of the men who were plotting and planning to skim money out of Las Vegas casinos, to uh, bribe politicians and, and do all kinds of things out in Las Vegas. Got the Kansas City Mob Tour app. No matter where you live in, in the world, you can get this app and, and take your mob tour of Kansas City. So we look forward to a new year in 2020. I am going to uh, be gone for the month of February, but I've got enough episodes uh, up that uh, that I won't, uh, uh, I won't miss an episode for you guys out there. But I am taking off for that whole month. I'm getting tired. I may not answer emails and stuff during that time. I probably will answer a few, but but I'm not going to do very much. I'm actually thinking about writing another book. We'll see. And it won't be about the mob. It's about uh, another case that, that I've researched the heck out of, which is pretty interesting. Good night, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.